Coming up next year on the Brandon's World Podcast, Brandon Tinsel with more colleague at Believe in Media LLC, the coach of the Guardians of the COE podcast, Mel Kirby. The duo discuss all things Cleveland Guardians, including their recent struggles and is there reason for optimism? Was the NBA playoffs and a little NFL sandwich in there as well as the Brandon's World Podcast on this May 11, 2023 starts? Now, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Brandon's World. And here today, I have a very special guest because for the first time on the Brandon's World podcast, I am bringing on one of the most knowledgeable sports fans in the entire CLE, specifically when it comes to baseball and her Cleveland Guardians, the co-host of the Guardians of the CLE podcast over at Believe Win Media LLC, Melanie Kirby. What's up, Brandon? How you doing? I am doing great. You know, Mel, of course, about a month ago, I had uh, your your co-host of the podcast, James Alfred's on, and so now it's time to uh, return the favor and bring you on, and you know, let's, uh, let's dive right into these Guardians because I know you have a lot of thoughts on them. Uh, currently, there are four games under 500, 14 and 18. Time of this recording, lost another tough game last night, two to nothing to the Minnesota Twins. Listen, I, I know you're frustrated, but and I'm going to want you to hear those frustrations, but I'm also going to say I am going to be your calming voice today as well. I need it. Uh, so I think first off <clears throat> with the Guardians, I think expectations are what gets people in trouble, myself included. And I think that's why this slow start has hurt so much more because they had such a fun season last year. They had no bad injury luck. Everything just kind of clicked for them. They had very timely hitting and these 17 major league debuts were impactful. And obviously we know they took the Yankees to five games in the ALDS. So we kind of, we, us as guardian fans kind of waited all winter to see what was going to happen this year. And it hasn't came to fruition yet. And we got the Tristan McKenzie injury news in spring training. Then Savali goes down and we're worried about the pitching. We thought the pitching would be the issue. Obviously Logan C. Allen and Tanner Bybee, and Peyton Battenfield, it'd be unfair to not include him in this, have came up and just dominated. But unfortunately, that doesn't matter if the offense cannot score runs. And I think that was so disheartening last night. Peyton Battenfield has a perfect game into the fifth inning, gives up a two-run homer to Max Kepler, who has like 882 home runs at Progressive Field in his career, it feels like. And it felt insurmountable. It felt like it was 22 to nothing because... I have zero faith that this lineup can score any runs right now. They have the lowest OPS in the league. They're second worst in slugging percentage. They have 17 home runs on the season, which is like one less than the Nationals or one more than the Nationals. It's just not going to get it done. When it's May 6th and you have two combined home runs from your starting outfield, it's just not going to play up here. And it just seems like there's an unwillingness to do anything about it. And what what broke me last night was hearing Tito Francona on the manager show say, there's no help coming. These are our guys. We got to break them out of it. They have to hit. And that broke me because Brian Rocchio was at AAA destroying the baseball and we're stuck with Ahmed Rosario because they held on to him for too long. Well, I with Ahmed, I still think somewhat he, he is going to bounce back. 
Uh, he's had a history of really struggling in the in, in the cold weather, which obviously would concern you by the time you get to September, October. But but in those summer months, as we get into May, June, July, um, I do think he he's going to bounce back. Though I do think at some point. Brayon Rakio, as you mentioned, is going to come up. I don't know if it's right now. I almost think that they are waiting till the end of May. Uh, and I, I do believe that because I think when you look at this team, and I was looking at the numbers compared to this year and last year, obviously the offense is not as productive as they were last year, but the record is almost identical. Um, I think at this time last year they were 16-16. This year they're 14-18. So two games off the pace. Now, granted, I am also wondering if this year is going to be different because of the fact of the new balanced schedule. Um, you know, we're not going to be able to beat up on the Royals and the Tigers and the White Sox 19 times a year. I think it's like 10 times a year. But you're going to see a lot of those lower-level teams. I think it's very exciting. Um, but my general rule now when it comes to baseball is if you're about 500 by May, I'm actually okay with it, specifically when it comes to this Guardians team, because I know they almost always take off in the second half. And I'm looking at teams, there's a lot of weirdness in baseball this year. Pittsburgh has obviously taken off. Uh, Texas has had a surprising start. We know the Cardinals are, you know, down in the basement of the NL Central. So, and obviously what the Rays have done in Tampa and the Yankees struggling too, like and Aaron Judge just went down. So it's not just the Guardians. Uh, and so with this division being so weak to me, there is reason for, for optimism that even though everybody is struggling right now, like we're not dead by, by any means. We're really right where almost we're supposed to be if we can just pick up a couple of victories. They're not dead by any means, like you said, due to the fact they play in the AL Central. But what's most concerning to me and why it feels a bit different than their slow start last year is the way in which they're losing games. They've never lost five straight series under Tito Francona, and it's been, what, 11 years or something? Yeah. They have now. They haven't won a series since Washington, and before that they hadn't won a series since Oakland, where they had the opening road trip and took the series from Seattle and Oakland. And Ahmed Rosario, so I do agree with you. I think – he has his normal cold month, hot month, cold month, hot month, cold month, hot month. That's if you look at his career stats every single year, it's how he goes. Yeah. He's God awful for a month, really good for a month. God awful. Like it's very up and down with him. There's not really any middle ground there, but I think what's most concerning about Ahmed Rosario is he's in the two spot in the lineup. Doesn't appear to be going anywhere. And he's mainly a ground ball hitter. And Stephen Kwan's getting on base at a fairly high clip at uh, 358. So Stephen Kwan's getting on base, but he's immediately getting erased because Ahmed Rosario keeps hitting into double plays. Or he's striking out. He has a 28.7% strikeout rate, which is second on the team amongst regular players. And the book's out on him. Throw him a slider in the other batter's box. His back foot gets off the ground all wild. He, He wails away at it. And he's immediately down 0-2. The whole thing last week was we're preaching patience to the guys. Get deep into counts. You know, make the pitcher work. As Andre Knott's talking about it on the broadcast, Ahmed Rosario swings at the first pitch, pops it up. Completely unproductive at bat. So my issue there is move him down in the lineup. 
because you have you have Andre Semenez in the seven hole and he's trying to bunt for some reason. He keeps yeah. trying to bunt, which somebody needs to yoke him up by the jersey and demand that he stop bunting. Yeah. Because I said it on our podcast last week. Who are you bunting for? You're trying to get a runner into scoring position for who? Mike Zanino, who feels like he hasn't had a hit in three weeks. Yeah. For Miles Straw, who may get a weak dribbler that finds a hole. But, like, we need you to drive in runs. Like, we don't need you to be the guy to bunk guys over. Right? Like, yes. our whole lineup right now, like, the construction of it, it just feels like Tito has guys married to a spot in the order when based off last year and it's like why why do we make it such a big thing in cleveland to just kind of rearrange a lineup just to spark it a little bit sometimes you just need a spark all it really takes is one guy to start hitting and it can be contagious through the rest of the lineup but it's disheartening when steven kwan will get on base like he did in the ninth last night and ahmed rosario immediately strikes out and it's like deflating the rally's dead just like that where it's like, I think even though Andre Jimenez is in a bit of a slump right now, he still is an 84 WRC plus, And that's yeah. including him being like disastrous the last two weeks. And he's seeing different pitches down in the seven hole than I think he would hitting in front of Jose Ramirez. He's trying so hard to swing himself out of his slump like most of these guys are that he's seeing less than 50% of his pitches in the zone. Because guys are, are going to be a little more careful with Andre Semenis when you have Mike Zanino and Miles Straw behind him, right? So I think if you moved Andre Semenis up to that two-hole, he could, like, live out his weird bunting fetish if he really needed to because Jose Ramirez is coming up. So that's fine. There might be some situations where you could bunt up there. And I also think he's going to see more pitches in the zone, which could allow him yeah. a better chance to swing the bat. Right. So well, I think there's some internal things they could do. The, the the thing is, is this year, like you, you're not even, you know, you you mentioned it. The team has a total of of 17 home runs. Like they are not getting the ball out of the ballpark. Everything is mostly a base hit. I mean, they're not even getting a lot of doubles. It is mostly just base hit and walks and trying to really. Uh, get those runs in. and that includes Jose Ramirez who you know maybe it's because of again the lack of protection and not only two but at four as well as Josh Bell is you know really hot and cold and more cold than hot um, and so I think a lot of it has to do with outside of you know Juan Jose a little bit and then you know Jimenez you're not getting consistent at bats from from anybody. Straw had a good start. You mentioned, you know, he's going off. Uh, they have a lot of speed, and it seems like that that's the way that, that they want to score runs is, you know, get base hits and steal bases and get sacrifice flies. Basically, it's really um in 2023 when you have teams like Tampa Bay who again is in the same you know, money situated as Cleveland hitting the ball out of the ballpark every night. They're leading the league in slugging and we're last in the league. So it's like how much of this is like a developmental philosophy? Because if you look at our minor league system, we're not even really developing power. Yeah. Outside of George Valera and John Kenzie Noel, there's really no consistent power to speak of in our system. Because like you said, they put such an emphasis on contact yeah. Where it's it's like all contact is not created equal. If you're rolling over on balls and grounding out to second base, 
it's going to make your strikeout numbers look good because sure you didn't strike out, but are you helping the team win? Right. Not so much. It's like you have to barrel the baseball at some point, and it doesn't seem like anybody in this lineup is capable of doing that. I mean, and that's including Jose Ramirez. He is not exempt from this criticism right now. And, of course, he's the best one on the team. He's got a 118 WRC+, a 447 slugging. So he's doing his part. I just think that, I mean, he has three home runs. Fernando Tatis was suspended for, what, like 20 games, and he has more home runs than him already. Like, you got to hit the ball out of the park at some point. Like, we need him to do that as our franchise guy. Like, we need him to find a way to hit the ball harder. How much in in baseball, because, listen, baseball is a very – analytical sport i would say it's definitely way more analytical than i would say basketball and football is getting to that point Uh, but i think baseball is the most analytical i've always said that in in my opinion um i don't really care about swing rate or drive rate i really care about can you make contact on the ball i can you advance runners can you hit the ball but how much did do you take into you know, I guess analytical with bats and the and the bat speed and all that stuff. I do think it matters, and I do. I th- I think the biggest thing is: are you barreling the baseball yeah. or, or not? Are you putting the best possible contact on the ball that you can? And then you look at like the bat pip and you know the ex woba, and you look at some of these stats that it's get diving a little deeper, but basically it factors luck into this. Okay. And there are like Josh Naylor and Will Brennan have been two guys that have been like insanely unlucky. Like uh, the casual fan can look at Josh Naylor and his 62 WRC plus his 208 batting average and be like, oh my God, he's trash. He sucks. But he's actually been one of the most unlucky guys on the team to this point. He's hitting the ball really, really hard. He's just hitting it right at people. Right at people. And sometimes it'd be like that in baseball where then you have a guy like Ahmed Rosario. He's not unlucky. He just hasn't been good. Yeah. Right. Like he hasn't been putting good contact on the ball. So I think, especially for like a hitting coach, you can look at some of these stats and you can kind of have a starting point of what do we need to work on for each particular guy? Like for a guy like Will Brennan and even Andres Jimenez to a certain extent, they're really struggling with the high heat. And most of this team can hit velocity. The issue becomes those guys throwing 90, 91 mile an hour fastballs, the breaking pitches, they're all out in front of it. And they're not making good contact. But then you have like Will Brennan and Andres Jimenez is back to struggling with that high strike. He cannot lay off the high fastball. Where then you kind of got to see that the league adjusts to you. They're young guys. Now it's time for you to adjust back. And I think them sending Zach Plesak to AAA, it needed to be done. But I think it was also more about, listen, we're trying to take a leap. We're not going to throw this year away because we have, we're not wasting another year of Jose Ramirez. And we essentially have Josh Bell and Mike Zanino for a year. I mean, sure. If Josh Bell struggles, he's going to, he's going to pick up that player option and he'll be back. But essentially like the way they constructed this team this year they wanted to take another leap. Yeah. And I think the plan all along was let's look at the first half. Let's identify the holes, see how much regression is going to factor into this team. 
and we still have all our prospect capital. We can go make a move at the deadline. We can get a power bat in here or a starter. You know, I don't think starting pitching is a need anymore. I, I don't, and I agree. I think the one position, and, and we talked about obviously Mike Zanino a little bit. I do think that very soon, possibly by June, maybe July, especially at some point this season, I think you are going to see Bonet were up here. Um, I wasn't when Zanino was signed, like you said, I, I wasn't so sure about it. I knew he wasn't as great defensively as what the Guardians had, you know, for years. And we saw with, with Roberto Perez and Austin Hedges, and even you could put Jan Gomes in there. Uh, I think, and you know, I've seen some people made a good point that he still is somewhat learning, um, the, the, the pitching staff, but he has certainly struggled when, when it comes to fastballs and defensively the hope was that he was going to provide a little bit more offense from the catcher's position which has obviously been dismal for the guardians for years that has not happened and my counterpoint to that has always been you know outside of jt remuto and maybe yadier moina in modern day baseball there's not a lot of catchers hitting you know above that mendoza line of 200 most of these catchers nowadays are defensive catchers and so I think that's got to be part of it too. Yeah, like guys like Adley Rutschman aren't the norm, right? The the yeah. defensive pitching position requires so much defensively that that's often why we see a lot of these guys struggle. But the thing with, I like that you mentioned is they've always placed an emphasis on defense at catcher and yeah. handling the pitching staff for years. So we, you know, we always got frustrated with Austin Hedges not hitting this and that. So then they bring in a guy, they're like, all right, we need a little bit more offense out of that catching position. So they bring in a guy coming off thoracic outlet surgery, which is no small surgery for a catcher, yeah. especially. And the hope is he's going to bring the offense. We're going to get maybe 15, 20 home runs out of that position. But he's not doing that right now, like you said. And if he's going to be that bad defensively, and I want to give him credit for his framing, his framing is spectacular it's his blocking that he's yes. a traffic and, I, and I agree with that he is awful at blocking balls and to a certain extent I think it's messed with Emmanuel Classe a little bit because Emmanuel Classe likes to throw that slider in the dirt yep. and it, it was a wipeout pitch for him last year but I don't think he has the confidence to throw that pitch when he doesn't have the faith that his catcher is going to stop that ball so I think if Mike Zanino and I'm sure they're working with him behind yep. the scenes but if he's just not capable of blocking balls like that, he has to hit the ball because then what you're going to do is, like you said, around June or so, I think you have to bring up Bo Naylor. You have to catch him almost every day, and you got to DH Mike Zanino most of the time. And I also think they keep saying, like, oh, Josh is capable, Josh Naylor is capable of playing right field if we need him to. If that's truly the case and not just a smokescreen, I really think you need to consider giving him some starts in right field to, if nothing else, to increase the slugging in that outfield yeah. a little bit, because I, I posed the question last week that it, are we at the point where Stephen Kwan and Miles Straw cannot both be two of your starting outfielders? Because that's a lot to rely on right field to provide all of your slugging when yeah. left field and center field's giving you nothing. And I think the hope was Stephen Kwan could hit 10 to 12 home runs, 
because he showed that potential in the minor leagues. We know Miles Straw's not hitting a home yeah. run. But I think they did want to see if Stephen Kwan could give them just a little bit. No one's expecting him to hit 20 home runs, slug 700. That's not what we need him for. He's doing his job well in the leadoff spot. He's playing a good left field. But I think you need a little bit more power out of those corner spots. So if you're forced to DH Mike Zanino, then you're putting Josh Bell at first base. It would be helpful to keep Josh Naylor in the lineup against righties. Maybe give him a, a couple starts yeah. out in right field. But I do think it's those are a couple of those moves, Brandon, that we could see coming around June or so if this team continues on like this. Well, I think, and and the issue with, with that is, and again, Straw is not the greatest hitter, but he's not doing terrible in the nine position. And he's mm-hmm. so good defensively in center yeah, field. Yeah, he's outstanding. And I and I've and I've said this. And he, even Wagner, you know, when people are talking about, you know, he needs either fourth outfield or trade straw. He he's terrible offensively. There's not even the best center fielders in baseball that can sometimes do what he can do. He is so good defensively that and again, Juan Juan can play center. Um, but I just think straw's speed and his ability. And especially with the way this offense is constructed, as we've talked about now, um, I just think that I have a hard time getting him out of center field. So if you have, you know, let's say Quan and Lostraw in center, if, if you want to put Naylor in right, well, then it's like, you, you know, Will Brennan, Oscar Gonzalez, you know, these are young guys who are not productive enough, I would say, to be your your everyday DH. And so that's almost the the dilemma you're in. You know, I think with, with Zanino, instead of maybe having him DH, maybe you have Naylor or Bell still platoon in DH, and maybe he just becomes that catcher for one or two of, of the pitchers because we know that catchers obviously cannot catch almost every day on Watcher Salvador Perez in Kansas City. Maybe Naylor becomes your primary catcher, but then Zanino only catches one or two days a week, and then you don't have mm-hmm. Cam Gallagher on the team anymore. To yeah, me, I'm assuming that's, Cam Gallagher would yeah. go at I that mean, point. To me, like that, that is your better scenario because Zanino as an everyday DH, especially if he's not hitting as productive, I just I don't see that working out. Yeah, he would. It, this is all reliant on him picking up that offense a little yeah. bit and. I mean, Josh Naylor, we're talking like one, maybe two starts every couple weeks. Nothing like that would put him in the regular outfield rotation. But that's the frustrating thing about the right field position is we thought we had a lot of depth there and we're going to be really good. But neither Oscar Gonzalez nor Will Brennan have been able to really pull away. I mean, Will Brennan got off to a pretty decent start to the season. He was the surprise opening day right fielder. I think a big time too is it's hard for these young guys to get in a rhythm when they're, you know, like they're only playing a couple days a week. Like we yeah. had a string where we faced like six lefties in a row and Will Brennan never even saw the field. Yeah. He's been in a slump ever since. And I think that's one of the fears that me and some other people had when they held on to every single one of these prospects all off season, they've been kicking the can down the road for two years. Yeah with all these prospects who are ready to be in the majors, but they're holding them back at triple a because there's nowhere to play these guys. Yeah. So now every single worst case scenario is now coming true with these young guys where it's like, 
they definitely could have dangled Ahmed Rosario in the offseason. I mean, the Dodgers traded for what? Rojas from the Marlins. They, you know, once Gavin Lux went down, they needed a shortstop. Yeah. You definitely could have got something for him then. But it was that awkward, like, well, we don't want to send the wrong message to the clubhouse and this and that. But you know you're not re-signing him. You're going to let him walk, and you're going to take the draft pick. But what you risk doing is now you have Gabriel Arias not playing every day. He can't get in a rhythm. He's rotting on the bench, turning into a corpse right before our eyes. You have Tyler Freeman with an OPS over 850 at triple a he literally has nothing yeah. else to prove down there like i feel so bad for that kid and then brian rocchio he i mean these guys have like 22 game hit streaks in triple a because they're not triple a hitters yeah. they're right. major league hitters but you have a med rosario blocking those guys from being able to come up that could help our lineup and that's why i get so frustrated when tito comes on a manager's show like we there's no one who can help us it's insulting to those guys at AAA. I understand you're going to protect your players at the major league level, and you're not going to lose faith in them, definitely not publicly. But don't insult those guys at AAA who are literally busting their asses every single day. And what message does then that send them? You know, like there's a yeah, way no, to a say what you said without bringing those guys into it because they could help your team right now. And you're really in no position to say that when you have the worst offense in baseball statistically. No. Quickly, I just want to say that, you know, I am usually a, a traditionalist when it comes to baseball, uh, and I was very not sure about these potential rule changes. Uh, I was vehemently against them when they were first announced, wasn't sure that they were going to work. And then the first week of baseball season happened, and I came on this podcast, and I admitted, yeah, I was wrong. Uh, I am pleasantly surprised at the pitch clock actually working. I had, I thought it was going to be a complete disaster. I, I'm, I'm going to be completely honest with you. Uh, I thought pitchers were going to struggle with it a lot more than they had. Now we have seen some pitchers obviously str- struggle with it. Karen Check obviously the at the, at the beginning of the year for, for our ball club. Uh, but I'm, I don't know if it necessarily has had the scoring impact that I think we've all kind of expected it to. Again, banning the shift and all that, I thought it was taking away strategy from the game. But you know what? It is producing more base hits. Um, I don't know necessarily how how much the the bigger bases are actually impacting stolen bases, but I think we're on pace for 1,500 more stolen bases this year in baseball, which is good for the whole game. So... Again, I, I was against it. Uh, I always thought baseball was a sport that, that didn't need a clock. I always thought baseball was the one sport that was kind of understood that, hey, it's 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 a slower game, but it's making the game faster. Um, I still don't know. My one knock out of this, I still am questioning how much it's actually going to bring new fans into the sport because they still, no matter what, no, don't market their stars. Yeah. It's, it's always going to be the thing that comes back to bite them. They're awful at marketing their superstars. And also, they have the game spread out. You have local blackouts, which still are a thing and don't appear to be going anywhere. I would hope, you know, with these regional sports networks, all the, the bankruptcy with Bally's, I yes. was hoping that would kind of be the start to the end of local blackouts, which would certainly help. But then it's like you have games spread out on Peacock and Apple TV and Amazon Prime and 
all over the place, MLB Network, which a lot of cable companies don't even have, it's hard for fans to even find the games on TV, which is another big part of it. You have the NFL that they're on CBS, they're on Fox, they're on ESPN Monday nights. You know, it's like fans know where... Yeah, they know where to find the games at. And, you know, then you have NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch all of them. So I think the way they broadcast the game is really difficult. And I think they're on the right track with these new rule changes, as long as, like, this is the end game. Like, what do you... Is Rob Manfred trying to get games under an hour next? Like, I think there's a fine line where it's you don't want to take away from the baseball experience at the ballpark. Because I'm a person that when I take my kid down to progressive field, we like to enjoy the game. Like now it's like you go to the concession, you know, you go to get something to eat and you miss half an inning. So have, have, have you been there since the rule changes? I have, I've been there twice so far and I'm actually going um, next Friday, which I'm more excited to see Mike Trout and Shohei Otani than my own baseball team. So that's kind (laughs) of where I'm at right now. But it's true. Like I took him to go to the bathroom and we missed a full inning against the Yankees. Wow. The full inning was over. And it's like, so now they've introduced these self checkout lines at progressive field. Everything's really self checkout now, but it's like, then if you're in line and either you don't know how to work it or the person in front of you doesn't know how to work it, you're going to be stuck in this self checkout line. They only have one person to be able to come over and help you with all these different lines. So then you're facing those kinds of delays. So I think they're onto the right track with it. And I think definitely secretly too, the players like it because think, think about it. They're making the same amount of money. It's less wear and tear on their bodies. They're playing, you know, they're playing less time a year, which is going to help them in the long run. So the only thing I don't like that pickoff rule personally, like once you throw over two times, then yeah, because then it it's basically like an automatic steal, which yeah. we've seen it with our right. own bullpen. Like James Karinchak and Emmanuel Classe are not good at holding runners on no. at all. Even without these rules, they stunk at holding runners on. So the fear was always when runners got on base, they were going to run on them. So then it's like if that happens, then suddenly you got a runner in scoring position. Then back to our previous point, Emmanuel Classe is afraid to throw the slider yeah. in the dirt. Because then a pass ball gets the guy to third base. So I think all this does kind of factor in. You have also Emmanuel Classe with lower velocity. The big talk has been his velo on his fastballs down three or four miles an hour. And is the pitch clock to blame for that? And I mean, and, I, I don't know how natural yeah. it is for the human body to rev back and throw 102 miles an hour every 17, 18 seconds. No, and I, and I completely agree. And I have said too, like, I think that that when you don't have a runner on base, I think the pitch clock should still be 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. I think 15 is way too short because by the time they get the ball back, it's set. There's always like two or three seconds left on the clock. Yeah. And I mean, it is literally like the shot clock in basketball where it's not like in the NFL where, you know, clock hits zero, they sort of look up. And if you still haven't snapped the ball, then it's underway again. That clock hits zero and they are immediately like, strike or, or ball in, in, yeah. in the case they've of the been pitcher. quick with it too so like there was a situation where was it at where someone was, was getting a standing ovation yeah, by with the, the crowd Dodgers, and he you was in the know. box in eight seconds and they called him yeah you, know, you gotta I, read the room there I has said, to be some discretion yeah. my my other thing too is 
I think in extra innings, you should eliminate the clock. Like, I, I don't know if, you know, if there's a situation, right, bottom of the ninth or tight game where it's a 3-2 count, pitches are loaded, you're going to decide the game on a pitch clock? Yeah, like, that, that, the hope is that doesn't start to happen regularly. Yeah. That's I, a shame. I, I I don't like it. I, I think that, that that's been my, my one major issue with the clock is – it is taking away a little bit from, you know, in baseball, we always have like the stare down between the pitcher and the catcher, the drama of like bottom of the ninth or, or extra innings just, and now it feels like, Oh, like, you know, the, the 10th inning is like one minute. And sometimes, you know, the runner on second base has something to do with it too. There's just, there's so much change that it's hard for even I think younger fans to grasp it. And again, I don't even know like when I've been to a game, I've seen kids and adults like, you know, I haven't been this year yet to regards the field, but usually it's, you know, even if it's a close game, you know, it's the sixth, seventh inning and they're still on their phones, not even watching the game. Yeah. That's always that's always a part of it too. And some fans just aren't going to be interested in the game regardless of any of the rule changes you make. So then you risk alienating the traditionalist fan who likes, I mean, there's a lot of older people I see who go to go to games. They still have like the scorekeeping book, they're keeping score throughout and they enjoy the baseball experience. And it's like, you're going to raise ticket prices. You're going to raise food prices, but you're at the parks shorter, shorter. Yeah. So it's like, I'm kind of like a bang for my buck type of person. Like if I'm spending money on these tickets, like I want it to feel like a baseball game. Yeah. I'm, I don't really want to be out in an hour and a half, but that's also because I love the game of baseball and I have my whole life. So I understand some people are like, okay, it's a school night. It's a work night. Can we wrap this thing up? Yes. Sometimes it can get drawn out, but I think they're on the right track, but I do wonder if they're kind of going to tinker with some of these rules, like moving forward. Uh, I want to switch gears now. I want to talk about the NBA playoffs. Uh, I want to start with our beloved Cleveland Cavaliers. Um, because I don't know if you know this, but I brought on my, my old co-host Joey Schneider last week to the show. Um, we had a lot of interesting discussions when it came to this Cavs team. So here's where I'm at, essentially. I expected them to beat the Knicks. I thought it was going to go six games. I thought they had the best point in the series going into it in Donovan Mitchell. I understood the Knicks were deeper, but I thought the Cavs had more talent. I thought Jared Allen and Evan Mobley were going to be able to take on Mitchell Robinson and Harvenstein and all those guys. I did not come to fruition at all. I know there's obviously a lot of talks. The Cavs obviously need to improve the bench. They need to make a dramatic move at some point. I had pitched this, and I'm going to throw this out there, and I know, and I told Joey this. I know you're probably going to tell me it's the worst idea of all time, and it's stupid, so feel free to push back on me. But I am not ready to give up on Jared Allen and Evan Mobley working together yet. Uh, I do not think Evan Mobley personally, his body, even if he gains weight, is fit to play the five. I see him more as a Tim Duncan or a Kevin Garnett that is made to play the four. So when I look at it, to me, it hit me while I'm watching this series. The Cavs need a wing, and I think the only way that you're going to get a productive wing, and I know that Kobe Ullman has said that they want to go out and spend money in free agency, but the only way you're going to get a legitimate wing to me is you go out and you make a big trade. To me, 
I think the one guy you dangle is Darius Garland. Like, to me, you can move Mitchell to the point, or you can at least have Rubio come in next year, because I don't understand why Rubio didn't play in the playoffs at all. I don't want anybody to tell me he's washed. I didn't get it. We were playing all of our starters 45 minutes a game, and nobody off the bench came in. But you could have, you know, Rubio, Mitchell, Mobley, Allen, like, call Boston and ask about Jalen Brown. You can, I have even thrown out the Clippers are out there. Obviously, Kawhi Leonard is very hurt, but see if they wanted to do a Paul George deal or something like that, because it sounds like they're going to blow up. Like, in the NBA nowadays, we're seeing, obviously, outside of Golden State, who obviously has the best shooting ever, most of the teams that are currently involved in the playoffs, most of their scoring is either done by bigs or wings. It's not done by guards. Like that, that's the historic trend outside of Golden State in the NBA. And I, I had the same problem now when it came to Sexton and Garwin because I don't think that you can win championships in this league with two six one guards. Yeah. I, th- so I still kind of think the thing that it depends what kind of guy you want to go get. I think if you want to go, I think Jalen Brown is one of the best fits for this team that especially if they lose to the Sixers, they're going to trade Jalen Brown. That writing's been on the wall for two years now. There's something about Jalen Brown in Boston that's got him a little disgruntled. And I still think your best bet is like a a Jared Allen, Darius Garland package potentially. But the, so the thing with Jared Allen and why I'm okay moving on from him is I just don't think you need both of them. And Evan Mobley and Jared Allen, that is. And if we're still not sure that Evan Mobley can play the five, because I agree with you, he's just not able to keep weight on. Like, I just don't think he could keep up physically with some of the other fives around. But I want to look at a guy like Kavon Looney with the Golden okay, State no, Warriors. that's fair. And, like, you got to just go get a guy. Like, think if they even had Isaiah Hartenstein still. Well, These think, just like yeah. scrappy big dudes that like aren't going to let those rebounds get away because Jared Allen saying like, I think the bright, the lights were a little yeah, bit that, brighter. That concerned me. That, that, that concerned, concerned me. Like, because here's, I was t- talking to someone on Twitter about this and we were having a good discussion that like, I get it that it was in New York, but I kind of feel like some guys just aren't playoff performers. They're they're not. And, it's and a fire within you, so and I didn't you, see you one do. bit of it. But no, I have you a, don't. But I also think that that flagrant foul on Julius Randle changed him a little bit. Like Jared Allen is such like a nice, low key. Everything's funny. I'm gonna smile my. Almost like a pothead, low key. Yeah, like the Cavs need his... dogs outside and... of Donovan Mitchell, and I've been saying it all year. Outside of Donovan Mitchell, they had nobody that was physically yeah. tough, and they didn't utilize Lamar Stevens for that Lamar, physical role. He, I, I he came in for two minutes in Game Five. They got back in the game, and JV pulled him but right away. At the I... worst time, though, they put Lamar Stevens in the game when when Acuro was cooking. Like Isaac yeah. Okoro was cooking at that point, and he, and Lamar well, he, Stevens he was, was the, the first only off one the bench. that could score. I yeah, mean, and so here's the problem with this team. Uh, 
I think in the NBA, your small forward, as I just said, outside of obviously Philly, Joel Embiid, Denver, Nicole Jokic, usually if you look at most teams, they're leading scorers for championship teams. Like a lot of it comes to that small forward position. It has the most premium position. You know, your your LeBron, your Kevin Durant of the world, Kawhi Leonard, when he's healthy, is absolutely phenomenal. Um, so my thing is. I and I know and I know people are saying who the hell were they going to get at the deadline? Like I'm sorry, Atlanta gave up four second round picks for Sadiq Bay, and you couldn't give that up. Like to me, you, that yeah, I like, get that. They the, go the Levert press- and a Coro to me, and see, like what you could have gotten something for two guys that had okay games, okay quarters, but they're inconsistent. I need guys who are coming to play every single night. I get frustrated with the fans who bring up Josh Hart because Josh Hart went for a first-round pick. Like, you could want Josh Hart all you want, but Portland's going to take the offer with the first-round pick attached to it, which we didn't have. So would he have been an upgrade? And there were fans saying he wouldn't have been an upgrade over Jetty Osmond. That oh, was he crazy talk. would have been an upgrade. I would have, yeah, I would have loved that. I think where they're at now, like, I almost think you got to keep a Coro. Like, his defense on Jalen Brunson was game-changing, and it gave the Cavs a chance if they could have hit open shots. But I don't know what the hell happened to Donovan Mitchell. I think for him, playing New York, in New York, his hometown team, all the backstories that had to go along with that. I don't know if like his head was just too full of stuff. Like he had too much on his mind. I have never seen him shoot so poorly. And I, then I'm like, game five, he's got to come out cooking. There's yeah. no way. I, I thought the Cavs were going to blow them out in game five. I was like, I did you know too. I was this... like all the talk, they're coming out and they're going to whoop them. No, I, I thought going into the series, I thought, the Cavs were, were going to win in six, as I said. Um, I thought, you know, we might split in Cleveland. We might split in New York. We would win game five. We'd go back to New York and win game six. After game one, I said, I think we're going to lose this series. And even when we blew them out in game two, I came out the next day and said, we're not going to win an- another game in this series. Because the way New York played in that game, they didn't even try uh, and the Cavs were not going to shoot like that again. Kyrus LeVert was not going to have an incredible performance like that again. Like, LeVert is a scorer, but that's all he is. Uh, he's a madman when it comes to shooting. He doesn't pass, which drives me completely nuts. Um, and again, he's he's one of those players in the NBA that it's like he can be a good player on some nights, but he can also be an awful player on, on other nights. And when he's almost your only score off the bench, which again, we didn't play Dean Wade at all in the series. Barely played Lamar Stevens. Didn't play Robin Lopez the whole year, which I never got that whatsoever. That was um, a series you needed to bring Robin yeah, Lopez in like, for the dog factor, the, for the, the rebounding factor. The reason why they got rid of Moses Brown, and I like Moses Brown at the end of last year. I thought he was a decent backup center. You needed a legit five to back up Jared Allen because we have both said, Mobley could play the five for maybe a couple minutes, but he's not a backup center. especially Yeah, when just go get a court. dog. Keep, I mean, DG possibly, I'd be open to the idea. I do, I do still love DG, but like, He's really inconsistent too. And maybe it was just the fact that it was his first playoff series, but I'd be fine. If you could go get a guy like Jalen Brown, I dangle that all day long, right? I I dangle Allen and Garland all day long because 
But this is also reliant. Like, can you re-sign Donovan Mitchell? Which Do I, you, yeah. That's Still the thing. And, like, people got to remember, too, like, I saw so much Nick Nurse dangling around. Players hate Nick Nurse. And if you're trying to re-sign Donovan Mitchell and you bring in a coach that has the reputation of being hated by players for, like, just kind of the way he runs things and his rotations. And that's been a big knock on him too, is his rotations, how Listen, he uses his bench. And JB, JB drove me nuts. I, yeah, his rotations were god-awful. So if you're going to fire JB, which it doesn't sound like they are, you can't bring in a guy with the same faults that JB has. And I'm I'm not bringing in Coach Bud at all. Uh, Milwaukee's a complete disaster. There's even talk about Giannis potentially leaving, which I don't see it happening. I don't, I don't either. Listen, I he's got I, that stake in the Brewers too. I think and, he's just content in Milwaukee. And I know that 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 you have kids, obviously, but I did not like Giannis's his comments after after Game Five. And you can tell me if I'm taking it wrong or not. When when he says, you know, it's a great lesson for the kids, blah blah blah. You, you know, there's no failures in sports. Absolutely, there are failures in sports. Like the reason why you get paid all this money, and the reason why we criticize you is because you you are a professional athlete. The relentless guys in this game, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, among many others, they have all had failures. LeBron was viewed as the biggest villain in the NBA when he left here in Cleveland. People were celebrating when he melted down in Miami in 2011. He came back and has basically reinvented himself over the last decade with all he's done on and and off the court. Like failures drive the greatest athletes in the world in, in any sport. And I'm sorry, if, if you're content with only one NBA championship and losing in the first round, being the number one seed in the NBA playoffs to a Miami team that didn't even have Tyler Hero and Jimmy Butler completely outplayed you. That bothers me a lot for someone who is supposedly the best player in the world. Yeah. I mean, those comments are interesting for sure. I mean, especially a team like Milwaukee was definitely expected to knock off the eight seed. I mean, I think Miami was a little bit better than an eight seed. Yeah, for sure. But there's no excuse for my for Milwaukee losing that series. I mean, there's so many questions surrounding why that even happened. Um but I just think also, like, just to kind of wrap this up, the NBA playoffs of a, as as a whole have just been, like, kind of awful to me this year. Like, why? Interesting take. Why have there been so many blowouts? Like, we're in the second round of the playoffs. And, like, they, it, the National Blowout Association is, like, really earning their name to me. Have there so been some good games here and there? Sure. But, like, I just think these blowouts are terrible. Like you got a YMCA team playing in the fourth quarter in LA and Golden so State. Here's here's my take. I I think we just forget that in the NBA there's blowouts almost every single round in the postseason. Even in the finals, we see we see blowouts consistently, and we all kind of forget it when when postseason comes around. Yes, yes, there are good games, uh, but I think in the NBA there is a difference in shooting, right? It's like if, if you're a hot shooting team and if you have the, the right matchups and the right spacing on the floor and other teams are missing shots, like it is the most easiest sport to blow somebody out in. 
Um, and so that is the reason why, in my opinion, I I think we're we're getting so many blowouts is because one team is just shooting really well on one night, they're playing really good defense. The other team is not. And when you get up 15 points in the first quarter, it's over almost immediately. Yeah. So all right. Well, I, I do want to quickly um address the NFL draft with you. We're not gonna spend a lot of time on it, but but the one thing um I I will say is that you know in the NFL nowadays we're seeing uh, a ton of talent occur and there's not a lot of bad teams in this league anymore. Like Arizona's win total, I, I think it's four and a half. If they had Kyler Murray, it, it'd be somewhere near near seven games. Um, I just think that the NFL is progressively winning offense, like the NBA is, like like baseball is, and I don't understand. You know the mindset of these defensive NFL head coaches. You know, especially New England, they're drafted nothing but guards and kickers. And I am, um, I think the NFL is again progressing offensively, and I'm very interested to see what the Browns do this year because Stefanski is on the hot seat, and even though he's an offensive-minded head coach, like Watson has to have a great year, or this whole thing's gonna blow. Yeah, I. I think they're capable of it, but I say this every year. And I I, the, I like the trade for Elijah Moore. I think yeah. that's going to help a lot. I like what he's going to bring to that receiving room. I wonder what that means for Donovan Peoples-Jones in the future. Um, but I think there's he's surrounded with all the weapons that he needs. There's no excuses this year. We know how the Haslams are. If they have another disappointing season, they're firing everybody. Yeah. They're firing Andrew Barry. They're firing Stefanski, the whole coaching staff. There's going to be a ton of changes, and you cannot afford to waste another year of Nick Chubb and Miles Garrett, which they've been doing for years. But like on the other hand, too, like I'm not getting expectations with this Browns team. Okay. I do it every year. They win the offseason. Browns fans all summer tell me what a great offseason that they've had. And then just for them to come out and look terrible on the I, field. So I'm going to wait and see. Yeah. And with I the mean, Browns, they, I need to see them play well. And I mean, they might have, you know, the seventh best quarterback in the, in the entire conference. So I agree. You know, I think that we yeah, need to see expectations. Last question for you. Um, Give me a team in the NFL this year who you think are going to surprise people that 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 maybe a lot of people are sleeping on, and then maybe a team that you think is a little bit overhyped that's going to come back down to earth. Hmm. Maybe Jacksonville will come back down to earth a little. Okay. I'm still not fully sold on Trevor Lawrence. Like he he got his flowers. You know, he played well last year. He kind of brought the Jaguars back from. I don't know. I'm scared the, of Doug Peterson's a great offensive the, coach. Yeah, Doug Peterson was a huge pickup um, for them. But I don't know. I think the Jets are also overhyped. I, I agree, too. What's I with Aaron Rodgers? I don't know. He, I don't even know if they're, they're a playoff team. Like I, I agree. I, I just don't. So, But, all right, thank you, Mel, so much. I appreciate you hopping on today in, in Bryn's World. I'm going to let you go and set out your social stuff real quick. Uh, yeah, you can follow me at, at mellow underscore NIE 91. Um, catch me on the Guardians of the CLE podcast. We record weekly and it's posted on all anywhere you find your podcast, you'll see it. So I definitely appreciate you having me on, Brandon. I'm in, you know, check out what Believe Land Media LLC has to offer. Yeah. 
totally and of course for sure mel you are welcome to, to join us anytime i appreciate it and we'll see you guys next time on brandon's world